this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. All right. Well, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we talk about philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. This episode is part two of a conversation with Dr. Ed Yuzinski about critical theory and uh, in its relation to critical race theory and some of the stuff going on in uh, modern conversation today. Uh, Dr. Ed, in the first part of this conversation, spoke about his lived experience, which is a very uh, a critical theory way of talking about your experience, uh, his lived experience in the academy, doing a PhD in uh, American studies uh, from one of the schools, which uh, Bowling Green, which was one of the uh, the founders in bringing critical theory into um, the academy through through uh, being able to to major in it. So, uh, without further ado, Dr. Ed, thanks again for coming on the podcast, man. Good to be back, Parker. Yeah, I look forward to picking up where we left off. Yeah, so so last time we talked about uh, your lived experience and uh, you going into your PhD work, not really knowing what to expect or, or expecting something different and then getting something you didn't expect. And and that was critical theory. So I wonder if we could start off with just a, a overall definition. What What is critical theory? Yeah. Man, and as you know, and anybody that's listening to this, there, there are so many different nuances to a massive discipline like this, right. you know? So I, I spent a lot of time actually, even in the last few weeks, just trying to whittle down in as as simple of terms and yet as fair of terms what I think it is. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put three things on the table, okay? So Critical theory is the study of power relations between human beings. So that mm. that's that's one hanger um, that that we can we can put other thoughts on. It's it's looking at life under the sun among human beings and seeing how power works itself out between people. Okay, so that's number one. Number two, it's an assumption that capitalism is is it. it is the primary reason why there are problems in the world between people. Hmm. And again, that almost sounds overly simplistic to, to say it that way, but that really is what is behind almost every one of the critical theory thinkers. Every one of the scholars that's writing is writing from a position that is deconstructing the world through the lens of capitalism is necessarily dehumanizing. Hmm. in countless ways. And the belief then that socialism is a better system, although I'm not, I'm not going to necessarily say that all of the critical theorists actually believe that, 
but they definitely believe that capitalism is behind the world's ills. Yeah. And then the third thing I'd say, this maybe even goes without saying, but I do think it's important um, that it's an atheistic, it's got atheistic foundations. It's, mm. it's trying to figure out life under the sun apart from God. In some ways, like the writer of Ecclesiastes does, if you take the gospel out of the equation, what observations can you make about how the world works if there's no God and it really is all about materialism? What you see is what you get. This life is all that there is. There, there is no you know, pre-existence. There is no post-death existence. Hmm. Then what conclusions would you draw based on what you see and and then just go back around the circle then again. Well, then the place we'll start is to look at how power works between people, mm-hmm. the dynamics of power and those who have it versus those who don't, the way that people will try to use their power to dominate or control groups of people and whether people choose to um, go along with that or can resist that. Uh, and then what are the effects of capitalism in a world where there is no God, but everything really is just it does just come down to exchange and capital being exchanged. What are the implications of that for us as human beings and how to live a good life? Hmm. So I shudder almost at what I just did, because there, there's just so much that's attached to all of that. And I, and I hate when people, especially now, it just seems like everybody is trying to. Um, trying to sound intelligent, talking about cultural Marxism or, yeah. or talking about critical theory or critical race theory or culture studies. And these, to, to be fair, again, uh, especially from a Christian perspective, to be fair, we have to acknowledge that it's, it's actually pretty deep waters. Even if you yeah. wind up disagreeing with its foundations and its conclusions, there's a lot of deep water that's being tread and observations that are being made that I find very helpful, actually. I don't agree about where they came from or what the conclusions that they want to draw, but there are some very profound observations being made that need to be taken seriously. So yeah. I'll, I'll stop. I'll stop with that. No, that's that's so good, and Ed. That's that's really one of the main reasons I wanted to have you on is because you did a PhD in this stuff from Bowling Green, and so um, it's great to hear from you that this is complex because you studied you you're. You can speak to this because you did a PhD in it. And what I find from a lot of podcasters, from uh, just from everyone, is an oversimplification, a lot of cutting corners. You know, critical theory is just this. If you say this, then you are a cultural Marxist without a lot of definitions, but with kind of an assumption that to be labeled that is bad, right? And so if you you are a cultural Marxist, you are the enemy, you're... you're, uh, you're slipping in this Trojan horse into my theology, into my philosophy, into whatever. So that's why I wanted to uh, to go in deep on this with you. And it's encouraging to know that even someone who studied this at a PhD level admits that it's complex. Like it's it's difficult. It is. And I don't want to be guilty of making the same air that I hear a lot of my non-Christian um, despisers of Christianity. They, they do this when they throw out a term like evangelicalism, let's say, Mm. and they pull one quote from Franklin Graham where Mm. they, they hold up the Westboro Baptist folks who are standing on the corner saying God hates fags or Mm something, you know, something 
repulsive like that that and the, and they equate that's what evangelicalism to them and i just think and this happened actually when i was in school i'm like well and i guess that there's a whiff of evangelicalism behind that quote or behind that picture but my goodness it's way broader and deeper and more fundamentally different than how you're describing it you know yeah or, or to throw out a thinker from the reformed tradition like say john calvin and assuming that because we know a few quotes from Calvin that all of a sudden we have this depth of understanding of reform theology and should be able to speak intelligently about it in a half hour podcast. And, and we know that's ridiculous, that there's right. walls of libraries that are covered with profound thinking and, and different nuances to the theological tradition like that. It really is the same thing when it comes to critical theory. So we need to be careful, even if we ultimately decide that we don't agree with its foundations or its conclusions. It's a disservice and it's it's being um, almost disingenuous to just throw it all out. You know, throw the baby yeah. out with the bathwater just be right. after reading a few quotes or an article or two online. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think uh, another aspect to it, too, is, look, say say you disagree with it. Um, you should deal with its best representatives. You should deal with its best thought leaders in order to, like, if you can combat that uh, at the technical side or wherever, you know, it's its best form, then you'll be able to talk at, at the popular level. And this is, I learned this from, from Cornelius Van Til, a Christian apologist who, in defending why he goes into philosophy, He's saying, hey, look, if I can debate with the philosophers at this level, I'll be able to talk on the streets. And so if you want to do your due, due diligence, then you need to like read some stuff, know what you're talking about. Um, and so with that in mind, Ed, I wanted to talk uh, just a, a briefly about like the Frankfurt School. Um, and so, you know, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I'll just give an overview. The Frankfurt School were a group of like philosophers and, and social theorists uh, in in Germany. And I think a lot of them were, were Jewish. And I think they left the... They left um, when the Nazis started coming to power. And I, I think they, they came over here. Is that they came over to America fleeing Nazism? Is that right? They did. And so as I understand it, and again, like we've talked about this, sometimes it's even hard to keep track of all the different biographical details, even of how right. the movement happened. But I think for maybe 10 or 12 years, it was firmly situated in Frankfurt, Germany, and yeah. and it was right around that that war time. And then um, when the Third Reich war rose to power, guys that were critical of fascism were being killed at worst and being you know excommunicated from the country, caused to flee at best. And those guys wound up scattering themselves and coming over to America. Yeah. Uh, and and so what were they doing? It's interesting because one of the one of the key figures, his name is Max Horkheimer, and he actually wrote a paper. It's called Traditional and Critical Theory. I think you can look this up online where he talked about how traditional theory um, for traditional social theories. The primary criterion is harmony. He said it's, it's an assumption that all of the parts form a coherent whole. OK. Mm -hmm. He said, or, but what critical theory does is it opposes the world of capital, like we always, we already talked about, which dictates every aspect of a human's life, okay? And that there, there's this, it's actually flipping things around. It's, it's the belief, not that everything fits together as this neat and tidy whole, but it deconstructs that 
It deconstructs the world to see where the gaps are, to see where people are being exploited and taken advantage of, to see where this system that we assume is just it all kind of fits together neatly for all of our best interests. Critical theory is the assumption that now there's actually they wouldn't call it sin. And that's a problem, right. but that there's actually nefarious, nefarious motives behind why people wind up with what they wind up with or wind up without what they wind up without that, that there's actually great intentionality that, that keeps people separated from one another. And, and so all the guys and, and women, it was mostly guys early, but also women that came into that school came into it with the intentional uh, looking through the intentional lens of trying to deconstruct what everybody just assumed was normal. And they've been doing it ever since, you know, what is that 90 years or something? And it's, it's gone up in all different, it's gone into different aspects of society. And so you get critical race theory, you get feminist theory, you get, you know, gender studies um, and all, all the different layers of society that fall up underneath that umbrella are critiqued through the lens of deconstruction, breaking yeah. apart, looking for the power the power problems. Yeah. Well, so Ed, uh, what I, when I first got introduced to critical theory, I was graduating college in 2014 and, uh, one of my friends was in, uh, sociology and he was talking about trigger warnings and we were kind of laughing about it. And I would listen to right wing commentators and they were kind of on the cusp too. They were, they're recognizing trigger warning kind of stuff. And we were laughing about it. And my, my friend in, in the, uh, the cultural studies and humanities and stuff, was ahead of the curve and he helped me think through this kind of stuff. But I started listening to like Ben Shapiro and those kind of guys. Um, and I got into YouTube uh, uh, conversations on critical theory. And then I, I kind of switched from thinking, oh, this is a big problem to this is a big conspiracy theory. Because like you, you just said, it's got its roots in like all these major movements, uh, feminist theory and all this kind of stuff. And now I'm kind of coming full circle again and seeing that it, it, it's not necessarily like something made up that someone's looking for the boogeyman, but that the critical theory did kind of splinter off in all these things. So uh, in your own view, how, how did it become so popular? How did it become so influential from this group of uh, refugees from Germany? Yeah, that's a good question. And, and even you saying, how did it become popular? Because I think you could argue that it, it really has made its way down to the popular level, but I still think that it's primarily an academic mm. pursuit. And, you know, what is the answer to the question of why it is that most academics tend to be um, informed largely through Marxist lenses? They view the world through Marxist lenses. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure why that is, you know, that yeah. the intellectual powers that be, the intellectual elites wind up um, very antagonistic towards uh, the capitalist cultures that they're a part of yeah. and concerns for fascism, for concerns about people being controlled or being oppressed. Honestly, th there's a part of me that just thinks that ultimately at its base, and th this is going to sound overly simplistic too, but I do think there's something to the spiritual reality of being antagonistic really towards the gospel. Yeah. at its core that that there is a god in the world and so if 
that that in and of itself is the primary divider between humans, isn't it? Whether you believe that there's actually a God that we're accountable to who actually gets to draw some lines and boundaries around us, who who can lay out commandments that say this is how you should live and this is how you shouldn't live. Okay, that that's a particular worldview that has massive implications for a person. Well, if you rebel against that and you say, I'll have nothing to do with that then we're left with spending our time erasing lines wherever they're drawn. Yeah. And, you know, so it's almost like there's a, just a, it's really an anti-God movement in some ways. Hmm. And I hate to even throw that out there for fodder for, for those people <laughs> who again, don't have ears to hear anything positive out of it. But to answer the question, I really think that that's why it be- became popular. Because yeah. it was a way to make sense of life without God, and it was a way to make sense of life where I'm no longer primarily responsible for anything except to resist the powers that are out there that are trying to control me by telling me what I should do with my sex life, by yeah. telling me how I should organize my educational life, by telling me how I should organize my vocational life. And so instead of worrying about whether or not I... I I'm going to be accountable to God. I just invest all my energies in rebelling against the system that's out there. Yeah. And it becomes sort of a religion. Yeah. Yeah. That that actually, that makes a lot of sense. And that, that has to do with that, that third uh, aspect you're talking about the, with the, uh, the atheistic foundations. And I was listening to uh, this, this popular thinker, Eric Weinstein, just, um, he got this from somebody, but he was characterizing the three political parties and saying that, um, you know, capitalists are really, uh, or sorry, uh, conservatives are like allergic to the idea of throwing out uh, the hard fought principles that we've inherited from our ancestors. Like we've inherited these things. Do not get rid of these. Don't uh, move a landmark unless you know why it's there. Right. And then libertarians are like allergic to um control don't control me don't tell me what to do don't come don't come down on me with your big government stuff get back off leave me alone and then uh liberals are really allergic to the idea of inequality and uh unfairness and like this isn't right we're treating people differently and and when they uh when they emphasize you know one of those things to the neglect of the other you kind of become warped and i I think that's a fair uh uh understanding and it, it would make sense then if if that's kind of a, an impetus that that liberals emphasize, uh, d- Democrats, whatever, um, then they would be drawn more towards this uh, critical theory, especially if they have naturalistic, you know, atheistic assumptions that there is no God who will establish justice. We got to do it ourselves. Does that seem right? It does seem right. What's interesting, and this is what was confusing to me, and I said this in our other session that it took me a year to even figure out what was going on. Mm-hmm. is that I think even most critical theorists would set themselves in opposition even to liberals. Interesting. That, that, though, that even though liberals would be more attracted to the worldview, as, as you said, Parker, but a true critical theorist is saying you all are part of the same economic mm-hmm. system and that is the primary controller for all of you. And so... Yeah. For you liberals that are out there, you wind up playing by, you know, the capitalist man's rules when it comes to how you resist. Um, yeah. It's OK. It's it's that Colin Kaepernick, just just to be very practical. 
yeah. that Colin Kaepernick's efforts to resist or to to protest. OK, that was the language that was being put on, you know, the kneeling incident, which, of course, now is years old. But that he was it, it was being um, how, how should I say this, that to kneel down before a game from a critical theorist perspective is is lame. That's too tame. Hmm. Um, it's, it's, it's playing within the rules that they set up for you. They're going to play their national anthem and you're going to, you're going to kneel during that instead of saying, I'm not going to play at all. So actually the NBA guys maybe even came closer to what a critical theorist would appreciate, which is saying, we're not going to play at all. Only if they were really serious about that, they would have walked out and never come back this season. But even they, why did they come back? They came back because of money. They keep yeah. back because of money. And so the critical theorist says, aha, you see, you're completely controlled by dollars at the end of the day. Even when you try to speak up about stuff that you say is wrong in society, within 24 hours, you'll be right back on the, you'll be right back on the assembly line yeah. producing products for the man. Dude, I, I so, love that you brought that up. I, I think that's such a helpful point, too. Uh, that's something I learned listening to. Uh, there's this podcast called uh, Philosophize This, and he went through uh, a couple yeah. series. He went through a little series on critical theory. And that when he was going, he's I'm pretty sure he's an atheist himself. And so this may be a skewed lens of Marcuse or Marcuse, however you want to say it. But um, Marcuse, going through his kind of doctrines, he's talking about monopoly, monopoly capitalism and totalitarianism and how we live in a totalitarian government. Uh, or system here in America and how initially you go, no, this isn't like North Korea. You know, there's no dictator. It's not 1984, but it's the way Marcuse described it. It's a little bit more like a brave new world where we're, we're making this system, which is totalitarian. And even when you try to resist, just like you said, you're still being uh, either platformed or deplatformed based on money. And so someone wants to speak out against the man. How do we monopolize this? How do we make this into money? And there's a great Black Mirror uh, show on, yeah. on Netflix about the same thing where this guy's speaking out and um, he's speaking out against the system and they give him a show and they pay him to speak out against the system. And so, again, you're just right back into it. Yeah, yeah. where resistance gets appropriated to capitalistic ends, you know, mm. that Black Lives Matter T-shirts start getting sold. And <laughs> <laughs> there's always a way to capitalize on the fact that somebody's trying to resist the system. And so it's like, it's like the matrix. Okay. Yes. And to use another pop cultural phenomenon um, that the people are stuck in this matrix and don't even realize it. They, they don't realize when we talk about being totalitarianism, when I use that word, I think Parker, when you use that word, I think of regimes that, um, that kill people and right. that make life, physically miserable for them mm-hmm. and the way that Marcuse used it and, and others like him, the, the new left as they were called in the sixties was to say that, well, once, once you get a Walmart, what, let's just go here for a second. Once yeah. you get a Walmart, you become your expectations and the way your mind works is that you should always be able to have this massive amount of choices when it comes to a product and they should always be at bare minimum price. You don't think about what it costs, what what that does to the environment to pull that off. You don't think about what it means to labor forces that are having to produce those products and aren't being paid 
accordingly for their for their labor. You don't we just we don't think about any of that kind of stuff. All we know is that we need to be able to have a wide variety of products at the cheapest level. And I don't know that we can ever go back hmm. after having that or the, the techno technology of being able to have a device in our hands that can do everything that that computing can do. That's literally changed the world and the way that people operate. How do you, how do you ever pull yourself away from that and, um, and not be dependent on it anymore? Right. And so the critical theorists would say you're trapped. That's totalizing right there. That's, that's you're being controlled by that because mm -hmm. now through that device, the man can send whatever messages that he wants to you. Now that you have a Walmart, you, you will never ask the question if maybe we shouldn't have all these products so easily available to us. You'll never ask the question of how many days a week should we work and how many hours should we work and why do we actually spend so much time trying to make more money so that we can get more products yeah. that never satisfy us ultimately and why do we fall prey to advertising schemes that constantly encourage us to need something that we didn't know that we needed a week ago? <laughs> That's all coming out of critical theory. Now, again, I think you can find all kinds of Christian authors that have written the same kind of stuff yeah. over the last few decades. Yeah. Okay. For Christian reasons where they're saying you've got a spiritual problem that you're trying to fill with some product. Okay. But that's what that's the work that critical theorists are doing. They're saying you need to become reflective about that and realize that these things will never satisfy your soul the way that it needs to be satisfied. The only thing that will satisfy it is is revolution of some kind. Now, again, I think yeah. that's ridiculous. I, yeah. It won't satisfy. That's sort of a lie. That's sort of it. It is a lie. It's <laughs> not going to a revolution won't satisfy the deepest longings of the human heart either. Yeah. Um, a spiritual revolution will. So there's the yeah. clash of those two worldviews, you know. Yeah. Well, Ed, that's that's huge. And I, you bring up uh, an interesting point about phones too, uh, with the Walmart or the iPhone. And this has been kind of leveled um, from the conservative side saying like, you're, you're a revolutionary and here you are taking pictures of yourself marching on your, on your iPhone, right? So like there's some little kid in China or wherever they're making these parts who his life sucks because you need this phone at a cheaper price. And so you can fight for his rights on this phone, right? And so I think Marcuse and some of the other Frankfurt guys uh, and, and even theorists down the road, I actually, I don't, I haven't followed the trend. I, I kind of looked back at the initial folks and I kind of like some of the stuff they say. And I, I bet I disagree a lot more with the modern uh, authors in that different theories, but they, they bring up that important point that you're a revolutionary from you know, wearing your Nikes and wearing and, and with your with your phone in your pocket, which made someone's life miserable to produce. Yeah, and it's a good point. And so that's the work of pointing out hypocrisy and contradiction in other people. Mm. And the unfortunate thing is I can turn that that lens right back around and point it at conservatives. I can point it at Christians. Yeah. I can yeah. point it at myself <laughs> and see all kinds of hypocrisy contradictions that exist inside of me, even with the gospel inside of me. Yeah. And so what does that wind up causing me to say as a minister? It causes me to say, come Lord Jesus. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
And then really, truly, our, our only salvation from our contradictions and hypocrisies and ultimately from ourself comes through the cross of Jesus Christ. I mean, yeah. That's why I do what I do, right? Uh, because I really do believe that that is the answer that both sides need. Yeah. <clears throat> but I certainly don't want to be found on one side or the other. And this is this is what I think is is disingenuous, that I can align myself with conservative folks over here and point out all the hypocrisies and contradictions over on that liberal or progressive side, but I don't see any of them in myself. Hmm. I can align myself here with the liberals and the progressives, and we can point out all kinds of hypocrisies and contradictions on the conservative side, and you absolutely can do that, but I don't see any of them in myself. And and so that's why the gospel winds up making that much more sense in, in, in verses like the human heart being deceptive and, and full of all sorts of evil and um, that I need a revelation that comes from outside the matrix. Yeah. I need the, 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 the gospel is the blue pill to get outside of the matrix, you know, red pill, red um, pill. Yeah. Oh, well, the red pill. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We don't the want, the blue pill. Pill. <laughs> we don't want yeah. that. Yeah. But actually that is the point. What the, what the critical theorists would argue is see, that's the problem. Most people do want the blue pill. They just want to stay right where they're at, comfortably exploited. Yeah. They want to stay comfortably exploited. And the best of them are saying, why would you do that? Why would you continue to not resist? Why do you continue to work overtime instead of going to your kid's game? Okay. This is where it comes down to practicality for me, where I think that there's value. Why do you continue to work 60-hour work weeks and miss out on your family life mm-hmm. so that again so what so you can make more money to buy more things for what you're not actually going to have any time to use those with the people that you love right this is where it really does and, and i'm not i'm not i am not an anti-capitalist right. but as a christian i do think i need to get better at being able to critique whatever the the secular world is that's being handed to me. And in this case, we live in a very capitalistic society and there's legitimate critique that I think the critical theorists help us to actually get insight to say, yeah, why do we do that? Hmm. Why would I do that? Why would I continue to give myself over to, to this business instead of spending time with my family? Yeah. And get to the end of my life. Like so many people do and say, oh, my gosh, I wish I wish I'd spent more time with my kids and not as many much time in meetings, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it, re- it reminds me you, again, you're saying that um, the, the Christian can likewise, you know, see uh, some of the same phenomenon and critique them. I think of John Piper's famous book, Don't Waste Your Life. And, you know, you work your whole life in order to retire and go collect she- seashells. And he's like, what are you doing? stop like don't and and you can get hit by a bus tomorrow so you spent the last 30 years working so hard for this retirement that's not coming and you know you're, you're trying to build a bigger barn but you don't know that your life is going to be required of you this very night so this is that's what's so interesting to me parker that and just going back to my experience in my phd program so there, there was a part of me that was repulsed by the erasing of all lines, by the contradictions that I saw everywhere, okay? The, the, the little hypocrisies that, that don't work out. And yet at the same time, while I'm immersed in that for five years, 
and we're doing all these different readings, I'm saying, oh, yeah, I actually know a Christian author that said the same thing. <laughs> That's really insightful over and over and over again. So I'm, I'm seeing these individual social observations that are being made. Again, the critical theorist conclusion is, no, I, I say no almost always to what their conclusions are, that there needs to be some kind of, um, you know, overthrow of the government, or I need to completely detach myself entirely from all things that have to do with capitalism, or that I need to experience uh, with my sexuality. That's where I'm going to find the most fulfillment. I'm like, well, no, I know that that's not true, man. That's, <laughs> that's not true. And yet the observation that led you there actually has a ton of truth behind it. You're, you're, you're giving yourself over to do something that's not in your best interest. Why, why do you do that? Yeah. I, that, that's a Christian observation. Yeah. So somebody well, asked I'd, me near the end yeah. of our program, let me just throw this out. He asked me, how am yeah. I reconciling? Because he knew I was a Christian. He said, and, and he was too. And he said, how, how are you reconciling all this critical theory with Christian faith? And I said, well, let me just start out by saying I'm not trying to, hmm. not the way you mean it. I'm, I'm not trying to reconcile it because they're, they're two wildly different worldviews. Okay. Hmm. And to me, the gospel transcends anything that I've heard here. Okay. On the other hand, what I'm doing is I am like Paul did at Mars Hill. I'm acknowledging where they are stumbling into truth and where some very great minds are experiencing common grace and they're making observations about the world that Christians actually can profit from. And I feel like I can do both of those in good conscience. And just like Paul said, I perceive that you're a religious people, but let me help extend the, your thinking. Let me show you where you're off base with this, even though I affirm this and this and this. Yeah. Dude, that's great. And that, that brings me to the, the question I wanted to ask about, um, about utopia is escaping the matrix and kind of the, the impetus. What, what should we live for? So from this critical uh, dude, I know it's so hard to speak with one voice when we're talking about critical theory, but you know, you, you, you live through this lens. You, you wanted to put it on and see what's life like under the sun in, in the best you can, man. What, what's the motivation for wanting people to not be commodified, to not be wasting their lives? Like what for a critical theorist, what do they think that we should be doing? And, um, is there any, I, I know we talked about this a little bit, uh, be off air, but do some think that you can escape the matrix and create a utopia? Do others think we're just screwed and, and this is where we're at? Like, can you, can you help us think through that? Yeah. So I will just say this from a theoretical lens. And, and mm -hmm. this is what we talked about that you've got different characters that are out there, like a guy like Louis Althusser, who uh, was writing in the fifties and the sixties. And he but he was more of a determinist, a, a materialistic determinist that things are the way they are and you can't get out. OK. Mm -hmm. And and his writings all kind of lent themselves in that direction. You can't. There is no red pill, really. Huh. <laughs> You're kind of stuck. Okay? And then you'll have somebody like Antonio Gramsci who comes along and some you know people are familiar with with the term that he coined hegemony. This yeah. this idea that 
uh, that people basically give their consent to what becomes normal, that the, the power brokers and the elite of society determine this is what normal is going to be. And we as the people down here then give our consent to that. And he said, well, if you give your consent, that means you also could conceivably take it away. So that mm-hmm. opened up the door for the possibility that maybe you could resist it. And then you have a guy like Michel Foucault, who basically said, um, you, you can spend every day of your life resisting whatever normal is. And so the ultimate aim for a guy like him was not so much even to believe that you could make this macro change to the system, but you in your own individual life could, could live in a state of resistance to it and in a sense could experience freedom in that. Uh, what I think is missing for all, for everybody, and I always came back to this, it seems so overly simplistic even to myself at the time, but I remember even chuckling to myself when I realized it, is that the advantage that I feel like I have as a Christian in my analysis of society is that I have a theological category called sin mm-hmm. that is far-reaching and deep and that that stains every one of our lives, Okay. These guys didn't believe in that. And so they were left with they were left with the possibility of thinking to themselves that it really was possible to envision some kind of a a utopia on Earth where everyone got along, where everyone did what was in the best interests of other people, where people who had some measure of power were constantly looking to give it away to others who didn't have it, Mm -hmm. where where they were not driven by commodities, they were driven by a love for one another. And I thought to myself as I listened to that, well, that sounds like heaven. (laughs) That that sounds like the Christian heaven. And you'll never see that on this earth because sin exists on this earth and people will, they they will always do what's best for themselves. Mm -hmm. Unless they're transformed from the inside out, they will always do what's best for themselves. People with power will will always be motivated to use that power to their own ends. That's that's human history. So it becomes, even though you guys are all really great thinkers, you sound really, really naive as you continue to hold on to this notion that somehow, in some way, if just the right people were in political office or if we resisted in the right ways at the right time, that we would experience utopia here. Yeah. That's stupid. That's stupid. That's not going to happen. And I say that respectfully. It's naive. Again, come Lord Jesus. That's that's why the gospel is the only worldview that makes sense to me and that's worth anchoring myself to because the gospel tells us why things are broken, that you won't experience utopia on this earth and that your only hope is the cross. Yeah. Yeah, man, I've, I found that the, the same thing is true um, with with that conceptual tool of sin, which is a theological category, um, which to me is obvious when you look at little kids. Right. No one teaches their kid to bite their no one teaches their son to bite their sister for the remote or anything. Right. That just it comes with it um, because we're, we were inherited. Yep. We inherited this uh, sinful nature with that conceptual tool. It really helps us think through. Uh, utopian claims and be more critical than the critical theorists were because they, like you said, man, it is, it is a bit naive because if you're a student of human history at all, it's like, dude, look at the human heart. Look how it always plays out every time someone gets power. And it's like for uh, maybe not taking Foucault seriously enough and, and 
you know, uh, knowledge and claims to power. And the, the capitalists who don't acknowledge sin do the same thing that, that the critical theorists do who don't acknowledge sin. Um, you know, yeah. capitalists will acknowledge that, hey, this is the, the, uh, the worst system except for all the others, right? But it's like, yeah, but it's still the worst system because you still have sinful people and you think that it's not going to devolve into corporatism. You know, you think it's not going to devolve into this or that because the human heart will do that. Like we, without the Lord reigning in our hearts, without him, you know, us actively acknowledging him, it's, it's, it's all going to devolve. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting to me, you know, one of the responses to Black Lives Matter, and, and I'm not here to be an advocate of that organization. Okay. Mm -hmm. But I still found it. Um, I found it interesting how the reaction was that all lives matter. Right. Mm -hmm. That, that was a kind of a, a typical response to that, at least within the Christian circles that I run in. And my immediate thought was actually, no, they don't. Mm -hmm. All lives don't matter. And I don't just mean that for, you know, white and black folks against each other. But again, if you just read the news every day, if you do a survey of human history, what's evident is that all lives don't matter to everybody. Mm. <laughs> they yeah. don't. They don't. Yeah. And so we need to be rescued from ourselves. Um, again, that's a very general statement. It doesn't mean that no lives, all lives don't matter to certain people. They might. But again, usually those are people that have been transformed by the gospel. <laughs> they don't true. just all of a sudden up and becoming these people who lay aside their own wickedness on their own and choose then to agape love people around them. Mm -hmm. That's that's not what people do. Yeah. Uh, our well, problem is way, way than we than we think. Yeah. Well I think uh, especially you know I don't want to just bag on atheists or anything like that, but with a given assumption that you that you specified in the, the third criteria there of the, the naturalistic worldview Again, man, I, I feel like they're not critical enough because given that we're matter in motion or that we're determined to believe uh, what we're, what the laws of nature fizz in our head and give us certain beliefs, like why why would anyone matter at all? You know, why should I care for my neighbor? And that's kind of still getting back to like the impetus for being a critical theorist. Like, is it just happiness? Or should we should we just be utilitarians for the most happiness for the most amount of people? Because you can do all sorts of weird stuff with those kind of uh, ethics, right? You, if it's if is it equality? Is it flipping the script so that uh, the oppressed now get to oppress? Because I hear some of that sometimes too, and um, just yeah, like with without the without the doctrine of sin, without the doctrine of the imago dei that, that we're made in God's image, I I just don't see where either either lens can get you like if if that's what you have without uh intrinsic value given to us by god you know transcendently why do any of it you know why why make money for your family but also like why work and fight for for less hours so you can spend time with your family who cares about your family well so what that's good and i used to ask that question all the time Parker, especially once I got to my my third year in our program, I asked that question. A lot of people, what do you think the end game is in all of this? Yeah. And I got everything from 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 silence, a sober silence, which I appreciated from people, sure. to immediate change of subject, which I also appreciate because I understand once you've sort of vested your life in this worldview, 
and it starts being deconstructed. It starts mm-hmm. showing where its foundations are actually really unstable. It's the natural response to either get angry mm-hmm. or just change the subject, right? right? People do that all the time. And then everything in between, all the things you just said, Parker, um, you kind of make up, you you borrow from different traditions, you borrow from Christianity in ways that you don't even realize you're doing, sure. or you yeah. borrow from humanistic liberalism that that you know elevates humans as the center of the universe and that at least can make sense to me although i think it's a really bad idea i think hedonism is at the core and the people won't say mm-hmm. this but i think for a lot of people it's just you just leave me the hell alone mm-hmm. and let me do whatever i want to do yeah. and let me express myself sexually however i want and let me and 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 we'll say <laughs> We'll say that I'm going to try to live in a way that does right by me, but that doesn't bring any harm to you. That's a hypocrisy, too, because I can make choices all the time selfishly that wind up affecting other people. Mm -hmm. But I really did feel like there were a lot of people who were they were committed to hedonism at their core. I don't want anybody at all to tell me at any time where the lines should be drawn. I want to do whatever I want to do sexually. I want to be about me. Yeah. As distasteful as that when you strip it down and just say it like that that's really what they were doing it's interesting that so many of these guys and again i don't want to make too big of a deal about this because my goodness we hear about christian pastors committing suicide several times even in the last year but so many of these guys wound up they wound up taking their own lives Hmm. foucault died of aids right um they're their, their choices wound up leading them to a place of nihilistic despair where they wound up really with no hope when they fully mm-hmm. embraced the worldview that they were teaching everybody across their lives. It landed them in a place that was hopeless. Yeah. And I say to that, oh, my goodness, why would I sign up for that mm-hmm. as a worldview then? You guys, look, look at what happened to all these guys that we're reading about. Let's be really careful to set some limits to how much we embrace this as a worldview. Yeah. And ultimately when I'm in that setting, I'm, I'm there ultimately to be the hands and feet of Jesus. So I'm not just wanting to confront everyone about the naivete of the position, but I'm actually wanting to be persuasive that in spite of your belief that the church represents the man and represents this tool of control you probably don't really know who Jesus really is. Right. And, and can we talk about that? You know, yeah. and I had, I had a number of conversations like that where people, I think I earned the right to be heard because I had spent so much time asking questions and listening to them and not just outright dismissing the worldview from the moment that I got there. I said, no, I'm going to try it on and I'm going to yeah. ask honest questions about it. And where it's shown to be lacking I'm going to bring the gospel to bear on that. Those conversations over pizza or beer or wherever we were at, that you know, people were in a place where they could listen. Dude, I, I think that that's huge. And to some people, that they're going to say that's squish, right? They're going to be like, "Well, you know, you need to just be a man of truth and speak out." And like, because I get this, you know, maybe they don't say it about about you, but I get it plenty. Where it's like, you need to use your platform to you know condemn and destroy this worldview that's taking hold of our young people and it's to me 
I, I'm not the guy, I'm not, you know, the Francis of Assisi who's like, yeah, you, you preach gospel all times. And if necessary, use words, I'm going to, I'm going to invite my neighbor over for a barbecue. And six months later, I'll tell him the gospel. No, dude, I do what God tells me. If, if, if he brings it right. up right the first day I meet somebody, I share the gospel with them. If he wants me to wait and hear their story, I do that too. But buying right. some credibility by studying uh, what they believe by asking them, Hey, I, I've read uh, a little bit of Adorno, or I read a little bit of Marcuse. I could be getting this wrong. You, you've read more than me. What do you think about this? And opening up this conversation Good. for you to be able to go, yeah, man, like I see there's a definite bridge here that I can build between uh, what you're valuing and what me as a Christian values. Except in my worldview, I think it makes a little bit more sense than yours. Can you help me understand how you're making sense of this? And so it's like a soft yeah, critique, but but it's an invitation. It sounds exactly like what you did, man. I think we need more people doing that. So do I. It, it's an invitation to a conversation, and it's a way of loving people, even in the midst of their brokenness. Yeah. I wonder if it also has something to do with the, the type of Christianity that we're, we've embraced. You know, the, the Reinhold Niebuhr, um, Christ and Culture book. Mm-hmm. And I always think about this, that if if you're kind of my, mired, well, I say mired sounds really negative because I do think there's a place to be against culture. OK, yeah. but if, if you if you've been discipled in the Christ against culture mode of thinking, then you're all about culture wars, man. You, your yeah. your rhetoric is always going to be antagonistic and trying to poke the other side in the eyeball and constantly trying to, to be a heresy hunter. Yeah. And like I said, I, I don't want to dismiss that entirely. I think there's a place to play that role in society mm-hmm. and in conversation, man, there is a, absolutely, there's a time for that, but I'm much more a part of the Christ transforming culture worldview of Christianity, which says that I'm, I need to be salt and light and, Man, I could go around getting in arguments all the time with people. And, and in fact, I used to. That's yeah. who I was in college when I first came to Christ. And guess what that usually turned into as far as evangelistic usefulness? <laughs> Nothing. Right. Nothing. It ended conversations. It caused people to want to stay away from me. It 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 became just a volleying of, like I said, rhetoric and, and bombs at each other. And I just think... I think I, I want to do better than that by people. Yeah. I look at people and I see that they're struggling with the exact same things that I am. They're choosing to try to solve those problems in ways that might be different than I would have chosen for myself. Critical theory was not even on my radar for three decades of my life. Okay. Yeah. Come to find out that there's been tons of people that had signed up for that worldview all across the 1900s that I didn't even know about. Okay, well, this is just another interesting, bad way to try to solve the emptiness that Pascal talked about that's inside of all of us. Let me affirm what I can affirm. Let me empathize. Maybe that's even the big word that we haven't used. Let me just empathize with you as a human being and make room for Jesus to be able to get into your heart through my love towards you. Mm -hmm. My goodness. Yeah, we need way more of that, Parker. (laughs) The world is desperate. Well, this is, I I don't, you're, you're so right, man. I, what I hate so much is that someone's going to hear that word empathize and be like, Oh, okay. Here's another person saying we need empathy. And it's like, dude, just take one step back from the political conversation and be a Christian. 
Like, yeah, we're called to empathize. No, we're called to sympathize. Jesus sympathize. Dude, okay, parse it how you want. We're called to be like Christ to people. And that that includes sharing the gospel. But if you are waving a Trump flag in their face, they're not going to be open to hearing the gospel. They're just I don't know why they think. And, dude, it's hard for me, too, because I, I find myself in the middle because I got, like, literally, I got neighbors that are on different sides, you know, all sorts of stuff. But I, I need to look at myself, too, because it's so easy for me to go, you know, I'm in the middle and I have the right perspective on all this stuff. I've studied some of this and that, you know, and, like, I'm wrong, too. Yep. It's hard. It's but hard out here, dude. It is hard. It is hard. But what you just said is a humility that's at least a great starting point, you know, mm. and I, I, I don't want to lack humility. And I do sometimes, to your point, I, I'm a jerk sometimes. And I, I think that winds up doing way more damage to the cause of Christ yeah. by me being antagonistic than to empathize. You. You say that it almost sounds like a negative word. I think about Jesus who is looking out over Jerusalem on his way into Jerusalem before he's going to be crucified. And it says that he looks out over the mass of people and he feels splontnismi, right? Mm. He feels pity. He feels this deep ache in his guts as he's looking out at these people who are about to kill him. In their stubborn, hard-hearted unwillingness to let go of the worldviews that they were holding on to, that were keeping them from being able to submit themselves hmm. to the truth that he had been spreading for the last three years, they're about to kill him. And his response to them is to feel deep guttural pity towards them. Hmm. Come on, let let that devotional just kind of seep into our pores in the midst of this political season. Seriously. Yeah. Where is just the deep literal pity that I feel for myself and towards people that are mired in worldviews that are not going to save them? Instead yeah. of spending all my time on social media punching back at them, where yeah. are the missionaries at? Hmm. Seriously, pastor, be a pastor to people that are on the other side of the political aisle who believe wildly different things than you do. You're supposed to be trying to reach them with Jesus. Dude. Not standing yeah. us, not standing them up with another Fox News post mm-hmm. to point out the foolishness of their ways. You're actually supposed to be pointing them to the, to the cross somehow. Yeah, that bothers me. I get it. I really do get it, man. And I think I think we're. I'd say we're. I think people that are choosing to engage the culture wars that way are doing damage to our efforts to help people come to Christ. Yeah. I think we're doing damage. Yeah, man. So do you, I want to, I want to try and be fair too. like, not, not that you're not being fair. I, I, uh, me and my brother, my brother has a podcast as well. And he gets uh, a lot from like the woke crowd. He gets just hit left and right. And I, I actually don't get hit from them that often. I'm usually getting hit from the Trump, Trumpy, like all in con- conservative. They're not really conservatives because, you know, if you know, like conservative ideology, you, you can't be a, a, a big Trump guy anyways. But I'm getting hit from more the conservative side. And so so we talk about how, you know, we, we see pastors sharing uh, different clips, right, that go around from the conservative side. Do you do you see 
I don't speak to this because I'm not on the left, really, of the uh, either politically or or theologically. Like, are they doing the same thing? You know, maybe maybe we say they're not as evangelical or they're not like gospel centered, but like I I also see the rabidness from both sides. I don't know if it's is it one side over the other? You think, or is it both? Like, where, where are we at? No, I think it's both sides. Now, again, are we talking to Christian folk, Parker? Because that's to me. Yeah, I, I don't yeah. have a problem with non-Christian people ripping each other right. to shreds. Right, I man. Yeah, fully well, fact that. Okay. Right, like what? Yeah, Paul says, you know, what business do I have judging those outside the church? Like, bro, yeah, you—that's their worldview. Like, that makes sense that they would be going so hard that they would be doing all these nasty schemes to try and discredit each other because they're—they're living under the sun. They don't recognize. I at at a deep fundamental level, I say they do. Rec- they're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, right? But in the Christian community, where we're supposed to be better than this, right? Like we're we're supposed to be unified in Christ, uh, but we're not. Okay. So I do think it's on both sides. You mentioned the woke crowd. Usually mm-hmm. that's in response to race theory, okay. which I think is a different conversation. Maybe that's part three, man. Maybe, maybe we come back <laughs> and do another, we do another segment on critical race theory because I think that's different. It's yeah. an offshoot of critical theory, but it's not the same as critical theory because that's so awesome. much of what critical race theorists are pointing out is actual injustice. That was actually literally built into the historical record of this country yeah. at the legal level that was intentionally separating people and oppressing people of color. Yeah. That doesn't mean then that I'm going to go along with everybody that gets called a critical race theorist or every one of the conclusions now that I hear kind of thrown onto that pile for reparations and what those should look like for. Yeah teaching fourth graders that this country is irreparably racist at its core and can't change. My goodness, if, yeah. where that's happening, I stand against that. Mm-hmm. But I still think that a huge chunk of what is supposedly in the woke canon is stuff that Christians should actually be taking seriously mm-hmm. and not just yeah. immediately casting out. That being said, I do think that there's a an antagonistic rhetoric that comes from that side that's not helpful. And I'm in those conversations all the time. Are you trying to persuade these people that are being blind to these racial realities? Are you trying to persuade them to a different place? Or are you trying to bludgeon them to a different place? Hmm. Because bludgeoning is not going to work. Yeah, It may feel good to you. You may feel justified because it's been hundreds of years and they still don't get it. So you feel like it's, it's the just thing to do to punch them in the head yeah, and I say take your punches, but that's not going to change anything. Yeah, that that's not the power of the gospel is not in that bludgeoning. Yeah, Dude, different conversation. I think so. I, I let's do that, man. Let's let's do part three. We'll find some time because I, dude, I it's so hard for me um, because I am in seminary right now and I have professors on both sides of the critical race theory issue, and uh, it gets into your hermeneutics and. I got friends and family on both sides. Like it's a tough conversation for me because there's some stuff I want to affirm and then I'm, I'm called woke and there's some stuff where I go, no dude, that is just wrong. And then I'm, I'm, you know, I'm called an oppressor. I'm, I'm perpetuating the system of white supremacy that I've inherited. And it's like, dude, I'm trying to be a Christian man. And I could be wrong. I could have some blinders and stuff, but you know, like with the organization we work for, sometimes you get bludgeoned in the head with the stuff. 
and you're, you're actually not given a platform to speak up. Um, and other times you are. And being wise with my words is hard. It's really hard for me. I know. I get it, man. It, it is for me, too. And I think it's worth continuing to try to be a mediator. Hmm. That, that's what I everybody takes on a different identity in these, all these conversations, you know, there, there really are different identities that we play as leaders and as ministers. And I find myself wanting to try to stand in the middle and mediate for the purpose of leading people to the cross. I had a pastor friend of mine the other day said, and I think he was mostly serious. He said, when are you going to take a stand? Hmm. He said, when are you just going to draw some lines? And I, and I said to him, well, I actually am taking a stand by not trying to draw a line. I feel Mm. like people are not listening to one another and are just wildly reacting to one another. And I'm trying to diffuse that. So there's Mm. actually a chance to hear and persuade and maybe get to a different place amongst Christians. I, again, I'm saying, I think that should be true whether you're in a Christian crowd or non-Christian crowd, but I'm inside of this Christian worldview and I'm trying to help people in the church to see what they're not seeing. And I want to do that in a persuasive way, not in a heresy on our way. Yeah. So Dude, I love that. I think that's great. I, that's, that's a good uh, like term uh, for me to think about and, and play that part. I, I like that. We need more people like that. And that's something I can get behind. And if I have that mentality, it's okay taking some flack because it makes sense. Right. It's it's hard when you when yeah. everyone's picking a side and you don't quite fit either side. Um, but if there's a middle side where you're saying, no, I'm going to be a mediator and I'm going to point everyone to Christ. I'm going to point myself to Christ. I'm going to take criticism where it's warranted. Talk with my friends. Hey, this guy said this about me. What do you think? Oh, OK, it's true. Oh, it's not true. I think that's that's really helpful. And, and dude, I, this is why I love having you on. Because you did your work in this. You're not just sharing, you know, a Candace Owen clip and you're not just sharing a Pod Save America clip. Uh, you, you've done the hard work. So we can talk about Ordorno if you want, or we can talk about like the gospel and how it in- impacts the Christian community right now. So I love that you can do both, man. That's really helpful. I appreciate you saying that. And I'm, um, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not the final word or a definitive expert on critical theory or any of these things. I, right. You mentioned it. I, I want I want to be clothed in humility. That doesn't mean I'm not willing to take a stand. It doesn't mean I'm not willing to be direct and point things out to people. Right. But at the end of the day, I want people to get to the cross and I want us to, to stay there. And I just think so much of what's going on saddens me because I, I don't know that people, People, I don't know that ministers who should know better mm. are fully embracing an identity that is saying, I, I'm going to become all things to all men so that some may come to Christ. Yeah. You know, yeah. that doesn't mean we lay down and compromise. And again, people's minds race to all these extremes. No, right. it just means that I'm going to, in humility, I'm going to try to empathize and connect with all men and women Mm-hmm. And understand where they're coming from and what the fallen condition is inside their hearts that they're trying to fill in some less than satisfactory way. And if I actually have the theological foundation that informs the way I think about the world, how do I introduce them to that? Yeah. How do I be one 
one beggar who's found some food who's just showing another beggar where the bread's at. I heard that yeah. the first year I came to Christ, and I've never forgotten that. That's my role. If I'm if I'm really trying to show other beggars where the food is at, it doesn't do any good to stand there screaming at people about how they're bad beggars. <laughs> that's great. That's you know, so good. Beggars yeah. who are eating out of the wrong bag. Well, that doesn't make anybody want to follow you to the food, man. That makes them yeah. want to stay away from you. Yeah. So dang man. That's good. All right. Well, let's save the, the critical race theory stuff for, for part three. If you guys been been paying attention, we had part one. Uh, we're talking about kind of lived experience that Ed has gone through uh, when he was doing his PhD work in American culture studies. Part two, you just listened to, has been more the the underpinnings of critical theory in general. And then part three, we're going to take uh, critical theory and see how it's been applied towards race and this offshoot of critical race theory uh, with Dr. Ed. Hey, thanks again, man. Thank you, Parker. Enjoyed it. All right. Uh, uh, this has been Parker's Pensies, and as always, all glory to God.